Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Learning takes effort. You can't just take the pill. It can't be foreshortened. True learning. Okay, that's a bummer because a lot of us, you, others, you know, are trying to figure out how to make training quicker, cheaper. Dudes, learning takes effort. And the best way to learn is to teach. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, Solar Warriors, welcome back. Welcome back. I'm so happy to have you here for another thought-provoking Thursday on Suncast. Thank you for lending me the only non-renewable resource that you have in your life, and that is your time. We are going to have some fun today with a friend of mine who is going to help educate us. And I know there are a lot of infinite learners in this group, fellow Philomaths, so I hope you'll stick around for a conversation with Mark Rose. Mark is a true solar pioneer. A couple of things as his accreditations, just to set the stage. Mark was training director for Arco Solar. If you don't know about Arco Solar, go study the solar history books. He was also a trainer for Siemens Solar, Astro Power, Sun Power, Sun Edison. Of course, he's an instructor for Solar Energy International. He was a technician at Spectralab before that. And he's also had some time now focused on virtual reality with a young company called Interplay down in Austin. This guy has had such a fascinating life, and it's all centered around training in the solar photovoltaic industry. It's been so long coming that I sat down with Mark for a long period of time, just catching up and having fun. So we've broken this down into two episodes. I'm sure you noticed that part one in the title. Today is the backstory. What got Mark into the industry? A deep dive into how he thinks about education and how the education of our industry is evolving. I mentioned some virtual reality. We get into a bit of that. It is a real pleasure and joy to introduce this conversation to you, and I hope that you will find as much value and pleasure in it as I did. And if you do, I would encourage you, after you listen to part two again on Tuesday, to go dig into our back catalog. And if you're just dying for it and can't wait till Tuesday, of course, we just interviewed Emily Wangerman. We had an awesome episode earlier this week with four fantastic female leaders in the industry in our Tactical Tuesday, which included Abby Hopper. So many goodies from founders and startup leaders in the clean tech revolution for you to dig your teeth into over at mysuncast.com. I hope that you will check more out. I hope you hit subscribe in your podcast player. For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, as I mentioned in the lead up, today's solar pioneer 
is a subject matter expert on training. So we're going to talk a fair amount about training, but I would encourage you to listen in on what the narrative, the arc of the story is with my friend Mark Moroz as we talk about his career being a solar energy pioneer, doing training at companies that you would recognize. Arco Solar, Siemens, Astropower, GE Solar, SunPower, Sun Edison. He consults for SEI, an organization that we're all too familiar with here at Suncast. Mark, thank you for joining Suncast today. Oh, you're super welcome. I'm really privileged. I, I appreciate uh, being considered by you to you know be eligible to, to speak here. So I take it as an honor. Thanks. Eligible, man. The stripes on your back make you eligible. Goodness gracious. You've been in this thing for far too long to to not be worthy of time on any podcast platform. It's actually kind of fun whenever I'm in uh, meetings and stuff, if, if, if it's appropriate and stuff. And people always go around the room or introduce themselves. And people are always saying, you know, I've been in the industry, you know, 10 years. I've been in the industry 20 years. I've been I've been in this long time. And it comes around to me and I they go, Mark, how long have you been? And I say, um, I think 44 it usually <laughs> stops things for a while. People go, was there solar back then? Wait, is that guy fooling us? What's going on? 1974. Unbelievable. You've also delivered technical trainings in more than 20 countries. What got you outside of the U.S. to start training and, and teaching? See, I come from the, the cool world where solar began being an off-grid application. Yeah, I talked about this with Sam Vanderhoof, the same same situation. Exactly. So I'm, I'm hanging out there with Sam and people like Peter McKenzie and a whole bunch of other Mm -hmm. folks that travel around the world. So the U.S. market, the European market was not a grid-connected market. So where we went was uh, industrial off-grid, we called it. Mm. Telecom towers in the middle of Papua New Guinea or uh, Saudi Arabia. These are the Arco and AstroPower days, right? Arco Solar and Siemens Solar, all the way up through the 90s. So yeah, a lot of travel all over Africa, all over Asia, either running classes or actually visiting sites and doing some troubleshooting. It was pretty fantastic. It's remarkable to be able to spend some time with someone today who has four decades of experience across many continents and countries thinking about how to educate not only the general public, but the professionals, the technical experts on pulling this industry out of obscurity into what we now call the solar industry. It wasn't an industry at that time. You sit on the NABCEP exam review committee, a a well-respected and regarded committee that specifically helps folks uh, with the questions or comes up with the questions that test people on their PV knowledge. So we're going to take for granted that you are considered uh, an expert on this topic. One of the things that caught my eye and that we'll for sure want to spend some time on today, Mark, is you've created a full curriculum on residential solar around 3D and virtual reality. I think there are a lot of folks listening today that are going to want to better understand how the 3D and virtual reality uh, space and augmented reality is amplifying or augmenting, pardon the pun, the work that we're doing in training. But before we go there, I think that everyone's story is informed by not only their travels and their culture, but how they grew up. Tell me about what specifically in the relationship with your parents and the work that they did informs how you approach your career? You know, I regard my dad with a great deal of uh, respect. He's gone now, but he wanted to be an actor. So he grew up in Tacoma, Washington, uh, fought in the war in England, came back, and uh, his dream was always to get into Hollywood. 
So he moved down to Los Angeles, met my mother at that time. He was always, you know, working hard on the side and worked at uh, an aircraft company in uh, by the Burbank Airport area where we, we live. He was pursuing his dream. Okay. So here's a guy who's literally pounding the sidewalk, eating an apple a day. That's all. Trying to break it into Hollywood. Told me those stories. We spent time driving around Hollywood. He would show me all of his hotspots. The point is that he, he didn't really make it big. Okay. But he went after what he wanted to do. He was driving after his dream and it fed him. And I saw that in him. I saw him recording on a reel-to-reel at home, uh, his voices and stuff to, you know, give to his agent and so on to try and get jobs. And it doesn't matter. Well, it does matter, of course, if you succeed. That, that, that's really nice if you can succeed. But to see somebody who is actually pursuing what's in their heart, despite, you know, the outside world telling you whatever it might be telling you, that was an example for me. And I didn't know it at the time, right? I didn't go, oh, this is great. I, but it sipped into my, into my heart. And I think what's led my life, and people that know me maybe will, will see that in me, is that I'm pretty adventurous. Uh, I, I push the envelope. I always want to be out there trying stuff. And I'm, I'm not too afraid to take risks. And that, that to me, was, was a driving legacy from, from my dad, certainly, and just from other people that I've come to see that I admire, to, to not be afraid to risk it. And that's a real... That it's a real platitude to say. Unfortunately, I've been realizing that the hard thing about wisdom, statements of wisdom, is that we hear them all the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wisdom is out there all the time. It's being said all the time. And we maybe dismiss it and we go, oh, that's maybe a platitude. Dude, it's not. It's actually what's true. And people that get older say it all the time. And younger people go, well, why are you telling me that? Then you get older and you start saying it. It's actually really true. And you've just got to follow your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's what I picked up from my, from primarily from my dad. I love that you shared with me in a previous call that he learned from a famous school in Paris about the mime and the movement, and how that in particular influenced your artistic flair. I think that as I've begun to understand the work that you're doing and the science behind the work that we all do, it's refreshing to know that someone charged with educating our future installers, our future business leaders, has that artistic creativity, has that underlying spark. Do you have a recollection of what you thought as a child you wanted to grow up to be? Absolutely. I was 100% committed to be an astronaut. I was in my, my tens and you know teens in the 60s. I knew all the astronaut names. I knew all the, uh, the ships from the, uh, the Atlas on up. I knew details about the program, and I really wanted to be an astronaut. And I, at that time, you had to be an a Air Force test pilot in order to be able to get into that room. So I thought I'd you know, join the Air Force, become a test pilot, and do that. My folks gave me a, a birthday present one year to go up in a plane, just a single-engine plane. First time ever in a plane like that, just to see what it's like. The guy did a few maneuvers, a few rolls and stuff, and embarrassed to say, I threw up in the plane. It just really occurred to me at that moment, it's like a heartbreaking moment is that I just don't have the stomach for it. So wow, quite literally. Yeah. My dreams started to change from there, but I was super committed to that. I was totally into it. And I'm still am. I mean, I, I stay up every, every single SpaceX launch. Yeah. I, I tune into it and I watch the bloody thing and I watch the landing and stuff. I'm completely committed to that. So my eyes were in space and that, 
you know, kind of led me. Yeah, well, it is serendipitous, right? And I know that we're going to jump into uh, a bit about how you got into solar serendipitous, that part of the work that you were able to lean into literally powered space missions. So tell me a bit about the transition from would-be astronaut to solar pioneer working in the 70s in the heart of what at that time was not terrestrial solar cell development. It was mostly focused on on how to support the, the activity in space. Right, exactly. Summer of my junior year in college, I was able to get a job at Spectrolab up in Silmar, which was making space solar cells. That was I was working under Bill Yerkes at that time. This was 1973. So this was right around the first oil embargo and so on, but solar cells were super expensive. And I was into that more from the scientific space, PN junction, physics, you know, side of it. Nothing about, you know, saving the world with solar. And uh, when I graduated in 74, I was able to get a job. Uh, that was in the R&D department. In 74, I started as a process engineer making space cells at that same company. So for a couple of years, I worked making space cells with the tweezers and a mask on. And these were basically two centimeters by four centimeters big. So I was working in space cells. And this was really just a carryover from my, my uh, degree in physics at, at school and so on. So it was all technical, focused on, you know, science. I got into solar. I learned about IV curves. My, my love of IV curves started then. And that carried through. But at the same time, I have these parallel paths. My, my, my air sign or whatever is a, is, a, is a Libra. And I'm best when I'm in balance. And uh, I balance between science and art. And so I saved up money and I broke away and I went to... Uh, France. Actually, I traveled around Europe for a while. And then I went to a school of mime and theater in Paris. I was a bohemian. This is in punk Paris, 1977-78. And I broke away completely, you know, immersed myself in that. But it's really weird what happens, how your life is like a yo-yo and how you're drawn back to what's, what's at your core. Because even while I was there studying theater and mime and... So you, you went to mime school, not your father. Oh, no, that's, that's me. That's me going there. Okay, I completely misunderstood that. Okay, cool. That that helps. That, that totally changes my my understanding of the story. Keep going. My father broke away from uh, Tacoma and uh, went down to Hollywood to break into his dream. I broke away from Silmar <laughs> and uh, went away to uh, Paris, France, and lived in a condemned apartment building with uh, four other people from the same school. Just lived the bohemian life. But it's funny because even during that time, I'd find myself going into a library. And pulling out a book of physics or science and stuff like that, and just sort of reading back on stuff that I had left behind a few years ago. And so it's like, even within your own life, there's this yo-yo going on that keeps pulling you back to what really engages you. So when I came back from that year abroad, two years abroad, I came back, visited some folks, and they had started Arco Solar. They said, hey, we need somebody who knows the front of a cell from the back. And I joined back in, not intending to. I intended to go back to Europe and vagabond for the rest of my life. But I went back and joined Solar. And I was caught up then. So this is 1978, 79. It's the taking off of Arco Solar. It's becoming the leader in the world. And I was just caught up in it then. So not, not having gone in being a solar cell guy saying, hey, you want to save the world? I, I saw myself now as a part of something that was really hot. And uh, I, was, I was bitten and I, I, never, I never could leave. You are one of the early pioneers for so many who got caught up in Right. I, I have heard this story a dozen times of people, my peers in my generation, who unwittingly 
took a job at Vivint, Sunrun, Solar City, Sun Edison, where you uh, where you also had a role. How do you think the industry today is different for job seekers than the last 20 years? Like, wh- what do you see, given that you're training a lot of these folks? The industry is becoming more specialized. So there's an overriding characteristic. So, you know, solar cells, whatever, evolving, but they're the same thing. Solar is becoming a business. So now you can go in as a salesman or a technical person or a back office person. It's just as big of a business as anything else is. But an overriding characteristic is that we're now more specialized. So when I started out, you can imagine teaching a class in 1980-ish, whatever, to uh, Sam Vanderhoff or, you know, with some of these pioneers back then, we were all having to learn everything. So I would be able to teach about mounting structures and batteries and the weather and physics and IV curves and sizing systems. Everyone had to know everything. Now it's okay. In fact, it's actually preferred that you become specialized. And so that's influencing everything, not only how the business evolves and how you get a job, but how training is done as well. So it's a sign of maturity. I think that's fine that we now have specialists and that you can go in really just say, you know, I know who I am and I want to do this. And that certainly is a, a big difference in, in the industry. Also, let's face it, we're, we're badass now and we're, we're big companies. We, you know, we can be small ones as well. And that's super, right? So that's where the action is. But you have now multi-million, verging on billion dollar uh, companies, billion dollar industry. That's a big difference from where we were before. Even back in Arco Solar, Siemens Solar, those are big companies, but the solar division was tiny, right? Now these things are huge. So you can feel like you're joining something that is substantial. It's mature. It's got business leaders that are mature business leaders, not just, you know, backwards folks that have risen up through the ranks. It's a much more mature industry. And I think that is really good. I think that gives people that want to come into the industry some confidence that this isn't this isn't left field stuff still emerging. This right. is mainstream. You've worked at name brands that we all recognize in the industry. You've seen and trained folks coming into a career in the industry. You've, you know, companies like SunPower and Sun Edison are still household names, if not, uh, not if even though Sun Edison is no longer around as a company. <laughs> right. That's the classic example in our industry right now. Sun Edison took the place of Solyndra as being sort of living in the lore of companies that are gone, but still have an impact. How does the decision of where you work impact your career? I realize that's a broad question. I'm mostly digging for, are there different lessons that you feel or get get implanted in your journey by being at different kinds of organizations? And what might you theorize or what might you hypothesize about how that would impact a career journey for someone that's trying to figure out how to get into or work through clean, uh, clean energy career? That's really interesting for me now. And my perspective, my overriding answer to your question is move around. It is super valuable and actually very important to experience different management styles, good ones and bad ones. You don't want the bad ones, but you've got to experience them in order to recognize the good ones. I've been through those and and I can now say, you know, I've survived and I've been through them and I appreciate them, even though at the time and shortly afterwards, I hated them because I said, I recognize the fact that you, dude, you are not a good leader and I do not want to be working for you. So when I started out, I started Arco Solar, worked there for 10 years, 
That got bought by Siemens. I stayed on for another 10 years. So 20 years, basically, with the same people, same buildings, same organization. 20 years, I have a 20-year watch and all that kind of stuff from Arco Solar and Siemens Solar. That's a long, stable period under one kind of culture. Now, it changed. It changed under me from Arco, which was an oil-based group. But the leadership of Arco Solar was an entrepreneurial open-minded leadership in the late 70s and early 80s, which got replaced by more oil-based, fossil fuel-based folks that brought it back to its core, brought Arco back to its core and basically sold it off to Siemens. So I was handed off unwillingly to a new culture. So now I was with Siemens, which is a lot like, let's say, GE, okay? Super big company, German as well, so a different culture as well. So that stint, there was a lot of stability in terms of being under those two umbrellas, but they were quite different. Then I deliberately made a change and I joined AstroPower. So that was a more entrepreneurial, more mercurial. It was just like Sun Edison. It rose to the sun and, and melted and crashed and burned. But I was able to see that leadership uh, as well. That got handed over to GE Solar, which was a little bit stayed. It was kind of the big company just sort of taking things over. It was kind of like Apple going through its IBM copying phase when it became the same color and so on. That was not too exciting. And then I broke away. I followed after people like Peter Raschenbrenner and other people that I admired and wanted to follow. And I joined SunPower. And that was a rocket. That leadership was professional. That had smart guys in the room that actually were smart guys in the room. And I rode that that for five years. I worked under Vikas Desai, who was, who was very inspirational in terms of having Zach together and building businesses. And I followed him into uh, PVT Solar, which became Echo Solar, which was my first startup. And that's a completely different culture PVT, now. right? PVT. And that's how you got into Sun Edison. I understand now. But you made a conscious decision go to SunPower. I'm actually really interested to understand how and why you chose SunPower of the many things you could have done. Was it following a person? Was it following a hunch? It was following people. You know, you can follow your hunch about technology and say, hey, I want to go there because I think I know what you're doing. In this case, I followed uh, Peter Ashenbrenner and Charlie Gay. Peter had been uh, with me from Arco Solar days. Okay. So we went all the way back 20 years before. And I knew him and trusted him and thought that he was a pretty smart guy. And he basically enticed me <laughs> uh, saying, you know, we got some cool cells here. But Charlie Gay has been, I think, a mentor to me my entire life. For those that don't know him, you know, he headed up Enril and a whole bunch of companies. And he's uh, been with the U.S. government now, uh, most recently. Super smart, super capable, super excellent manager type of person. And Charlie was consulting at SunPower at the time. And so I felt confidence that if those two guys that I really believed in were with that company, it was a safe bet, pretty exciting, new technology. So it was really following people that I trusted that led me on my path in that case. I think that's such an important point. And that was my instinct or my, my uh, assumption there, because I find so many people who they will try to pick and choose the right company in quotes. If there's anything I've learned in the 20 years since I got uh, into, well, 15 in the industry, uh, 17 since I got my graduate degree, the thing that resonates for folks that I've advised around getting a graduate degree is very, very similar to getting a job. It is not go choose the best school that you think is going to look good on your resume the same way a company like Sunrun would look great on your resume, but choose people that you admire, that you want to learn from. 
if that means you need to go to a, a relatively maybe second tier graduate program in the middle of Ohio, but the guy who's working as your thesis advisor there is a world-class expert on XYZ and he happened to go to that university because his mother lives 10 miles away. Like these are the decisions that matter because the fabric of your career is tied in to the people that you know, not the companies that you work for. There's this double edge to that in the sense that, you know, people starting out and so on, they don't know people already that they can follow. They don't know reputation. So there is a bit of a blindness that that has to occur and you have to jump in. But as soon as you do jump in, you do need to pay attention to who you're you're under. I, you know, thinking back to good and bad examples, I had managers that were chauvinistic, uh, pushy, uh, authoritarian. I don't know whether they were good businessmen or bad, but I didn't like being with them, and I didn't like working under them, and I didn't think they had wisdom and guidance. Whereas, uh, you know, someone like Charlie Gay or somebody else like that that I worked under, you'd know right away that you're dealing with a genuine human being that cares about you as a human being, wants to support your growth, doesn't want to put you down so that they look better. As soon as you start recognizing that, you know you've got a winner. I've been wondering, what's your least favorite solar asset management activity? You know, those daily, weekly, sometimes monthly deliverables that you just have to check off the list but can be such a drag. Well, let me tell you how to press the easy button and get going on the work that really matters by automating your invoicing and ticketing and reporting with PowerHub. Focus on the work that you want to do. Take the boring stuff off your plate with PowerHub. You can go to powerhub.com forward slash suncast to learn more. It is remarkable that you got an opportunity to work with industry pioneers like Peter, like Charlie Gay. Art Rudin, I can think of so many people, Sam Vanderhoof, who you don't know, you don't know when you're starting out at Spectrolab that these guys, along with you, are going to be the first wave of sort of industry executives that grow this out of a niche industry into the powerhouse that it is now. I think it's important to tell these stories. I'm glad that we had a chance to really understand. uh, And for me, even understanding, like you followed Charlie to Sun Power, I think that's a really important piece of it that we I don't want to gloss over, right? You have one thread line through your career, uh, if there were one thread, and that is the concept that you are specifically focused on providing world-class training. I wonder why has training as a concept been so important for you as a focus for the arc of your career? And, and how have you seen that craft evolve over time? Training, teaching, learning, education, it's, it's all kind of related. I think I'm a natural teacher type, right? Some people are leader types. Some people are, you know, wallflowers. Some people are, you know, accountant, you know, mechanically minded, whatever. There are personality characteristics that you can discover about yourself that are constant. And for me, I'm a teacher type. I knew this in high school. Uh, it was pointed out by some teachers who, you know, at that time, you know, you talk about counseling and you wonder what you're going to become. And some of them gave me feedback and they said, you know, you're probably going to be a teacher (laughs) because of just the way you think, the way you talk. It's not because I want to, you know, just force teaching. It's because I want to learn all the time. So that's a really important factor here, just complimenting about training and teaching in general. The best teacher is a good learner. The best teacher is a good student. The worst kind of teachers are the ones that are bad students. So a teacher that has stopped learning is not a good teacher anymore. And I'm always 
wanting to learn. I'm always deviating from whatever I'm developing. I jump off on other websites. I read books and stuff. I'm constantly just hungry to learn. And that, I think, feeds an ability and an interest to teach others. So it just comes from a personality trait. It wasn't like a decision. I said, like, I think teaching is going to be a, a, ludic- a lucrative career. No, it just it just comes. And it's funny because, you know, I ventured into acting and mime and stuff like that. I ventured into computer programming and stuff. I've, I've made deviations away from this career path, but I've always come back to it. And you can say it drew me back, but being honest, you draw yourself back. Like someone who's a serial entrepreneur who can recognize that in themselves, know it, accept it because that's a, that's a horrible thing. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> it's gonna, your life's going to be hard. But if you can recognize that that's your quality, you've got to follow it because if you don't, you will be upset and you will be inefficient at anything else. And so for me, for example, coming back to training teaching has been sort of a yo-yo effect throughout my career. I've tried to deviate. I keep coming back. It's partly because it's natural for me. I think it comes out very well and I love to do it. It's like, you know, if you do something you love, you don't work a day in your life. That kind of thing is true. So I recognize that in myself. In in terms of the arc of, of what's going on with training, I got into this from a technical point of view. So that was kind of good because in the early years of solar, I was the guy who understood how a solar cell works. So all the sales guys would be out on meetings and presentations and stuff. And they'd say, okay, Mark, you, you explain some of the technical stuff. Okay, I'm just a salesman. I could, I could speak to all kinds of audiences and I could hold my own. So that was, that was my powerful base. And, and so I started developing training and got pretty good at it. But I actually got a master's degree in education from USC with a, a specialty in instructional design because I might as well learn how to do what I'm doing (laughs) a little bit better. And it really informed me a lot. It gave me a great deal of information, formalized stuff, taught me new stuff, made me better what I was already doing. So that was an important step is to get that graduate degree to get that further education. At what point in your career did you decide to make that choice? That was in the mid nineties. That was at uh, uh, Siemens Solar. I, I got a flyer in the mail. It was the weirdest thing. Uh, you know, how people market themselves. And this program was marketing itself, saying instructional design specialty. Uh, it's the coming age. You know, DVDs were the big thing back then. Can you imagine? So I picked that up and I, I pursued a PhD, but I pulled out halfway through just with the master's and got that degree. But it, it really fed my competence to be able to do what naturally was coming from me anyway. For those who are good at math here, this means that you were probably late 30s, early 40s? Uh, late 30s. I mean, this was career augmentation. It wasn't career change. It was just oh, like- Oh, for career. sure. Oh, no, no. It's like, you know, my, my daughter is, is the love of my life and is, is wonderful, has gotten a, a bachelor's degree and is now a millennial working her way through a, a career path and is doing great. But she went into school knowing, you know, what I need to do is get a, a college degree. doesn't really matter what the degree is going to be. No one's going to look at my grades. They're going to look at my school, maybe. They're not going to look at my major- they're going to just know that I can do school stuff. And then I'm going to work for a few years. And then I'm probably going to go back and get an MBA. You have this all figured out. It's like the best thing to do is to be an adult learner. If we go through life just being kids and going through school and then immediately go to college and then immediately go to grad school and then immediately stay as a post-grad, you're like staying in a safe bubble there. Don't do that. You know, Finish a degree, get out and work for a while, interact with the world, and that will start telling you what you really want to know. And then when you go back for an advanced degree, call it a master's or whatever, you are going in driving your education instead of accepting whatever is given to you. And you you get a lot out of it by being in your 30s or 40s. Yeah, I fully agree. The people that contributed the most to my education when I was getting my MBA in my mid-20s 
which was far too early, were the 30-somethings who really had a lot. They asked the most provocative questions in class, and they had a lot of background to draw from to apply the models they were learning. And I find that this is what people do early in their career poorly as well. They'll dig their heels in and they don't they don't try to learn what's happening around them. They'll just focus on coding or focus on training or focus on this one thing at the exclusion of everything else. But when you start to put the pieces together of how the business works and you're a specialist in a thing, that's when your career starts to to spiral upwards, right? Like that's when you can begin to take on more management. You can begin to understand how your pod affects the pod next to you and applies this sort of leverage to the whole. One thing that is different for sure for all of us right now, uh, thanks to the pandemic, but also for our industry as a whole, because by and large training has been done in person in classrooms, is we're now forced into this virtual world. It's one that SEI, Solar Energy International, whom you are a consultant and a, and a trainer, has been planning for for a while and thinking about it. It's, it's not lost on many training organizations, but particularly the evolution of training and education right now is going 100% online. You were already thinking a lot about this and ahead of the curve in a number of ways. Can we talk about what you saw coming and how you've been preparing for it? Sure. I'm a technical guy. I'm, you know, technically based, whatever, you know, scientifically based and stuff like that. So back at uh, Siemens Solar, some people will remember, maybe and own this still, I developed a, a series of videotapes. So back then, you know, video was the thing to do. Couldn't record it on DVDs and so on. It was on videotape. So I recorded up, uh, God, I don't even know what it was, 9, 10, 12, 15 hours of uh, lectures and turned that into phase one of my training. So the idea was, if you signed up for the big Siemens Solar Training Program, you bought a, a training book and you got a bunch of videos and you got me teaching you the course. You could take the exam and you could finish at that. Or you could then say, hey, I want to sign up for phase two, which is coming into Siemens Solar for a week. And then we'd pick up from where you left off with that initial training and be able to build on that. And I often say that that's the idea of if you can get people from A to M with pre-studied using technology, then when they come into class, you can start from M and actually get to Z instead of always rushing class and getting to like Q or R and then being exhausted and saying, oh, you know, sorry, we ran out of time. So using technology has always been something I've wanted to do and I understand the benefit of it. It's never the same as in-person training. So in-person training, you know, human interaction is gold, but the technology is getting better. And to do pre-learning based on technological abilities, often what's now called the, the idea of the flipped classroom, where you do pre-study ahead of time, you learn the material on your own. And when you come into the class, it's interaction time. It's time for you to be able to work with the instructor, work on problems, work with other students, and work on the knowledge rather than get it for the first time. I've always understood that. Then at SunPower, really developing that, uh, it was a high-tech company that was my foray into Silicon Valley, and they were already using a LMS, a learning management system, and I built on that LMS and started to uh, make online lessons, and I really got into that, and it's wonderful. So there's video-based lessons, but at that time, there was this thing called Second Life. I never got totally into Second Life, but it intrigued me, right? I wanted to make my avatar be this, you know, huge butterfly thing, you know, with like 40 foot wings and so on. I'd be pretty cool. But the idea is I understood that virtual reality was an excellent way to learn. And that's really true. 
So I'm, I'm bleeding into the fact that we're going in an arc here from videotapes to online lessons hosted by an LMS, but it's sort of linear video where you sit and watch um, to now getting into interactive uh, simulations and virtual reality. And the idea there, if I can talk about that for a second, is that it's, it's almost like we're coming back around to the original way that we already know how to learn. So you can imagine being outside of the civilized world, being away from computers and chalkboards and stuff like that. How did we learn? We watched, we, we listened. Somebody showed us how to start a fire or shoot an arrow or build a house. And you apprenticed with either many people or with a, with a master. And that's how you learned really everything that you had to learn. Now, the problem with that is that you learned only what your master learned. Now, hopefully they knew a lot, but they're restricted in what they know. The idea of being able to work in virtual reality now allows us to, in a sense, start getting back to learning the way our body is already set to learn. We want to move our hands, move my head, tilt it underneath, look around, pause for a minute, pick something up. That's the way we're born to learn. And we've deviated from that with the industrial revolution and classroom learning, lining open the kids up, you know, teaching them the same material at the same pace for people that aren't the same kind of learners. That was okay for the industrial revolution. We are past that now. We now have technology to make learning highly individualized, which is a transition for people that have grown up and have only learned in the industrial revolution sort of way, classroom-based, teacher talks, students listen. That method has worked for a while, but we don't have to stay there anymore. It's really interesting listening to how you describe this evolution of learning. I'm going through as a coach, coaching training with a guy in Australia who's just amazing. And it's my first experience, believe it or not, and I'm, I consider myself an infinite learner, but it's my first experience where he says, okay, here's all the stuff. Like go in there. This is the library study. We're going to have calls regularly to talk about the stuff. And he doesn't say on the calls, hopefully you've gone through the material. He never even referred references the material. He just answers questions. And the students bring up an, op an opportunity for him to teach. And so he'll say, oh, this thing that we had in this module, here's how you apply it. And it is a fascinating way to learn, in my view. It's an absolutely, it took me about a month and a half to get like, oh, I need to continue watching the modules because they're, they're talking about stuff that many of the students already understand. They already know. Uh, and I'm waiting to be taught that here in the, in the classroom. And that's not the model. Like the model is not to come in and learn those things. You learn them before. This whole idea of pre-learning, I think is fascinating. Keeping an eye on the clock here, I want to make sure that I do dig into some of the actual 3D simulation work that you've been involved in. I recently had a chance to, and will have on the show, speak with Doug Donovan of Interplay that I learned about through my interaction with you. It seems like 3D and VR is poised to be the next thing. And, and many say, oh, that's kind of down the road. Uh, they, like I, read Ready Player One, and our minds are fascinated with this idea. COVID-19 has brought us into an era where Verbella and Next uh, Vertway and other platforms exist. I mean, we're hosting an event on a 3D platform. I participated in one uh, with Midwest Solar Expo uh, back in earlier part of this year. How does the training right now uh, work in VR? Is it, is it something that we can like actually plug into right now? And how does your work at Interplay kind of foreshadow 
what the industry is moving to and where where folks need to be ready to adopt. Yeah, this is super. I, I, I really want to dig into this. So first of all, if you can talk to Doug, that'll be excellent because I think Interplay is really leading in, in a number of dimensions. So check it all out and learn him where, where he's come from and where he's going. But one thing you said was that like, and, and, and this is true and he'll say the same thing. So it's like VR is coming or it's almost here, right? It's like, we've talked about it for a while and it's really coming. Dude, this has been being done for decades. One thing we have to realize is that smart people, usually with a lot of money, that have life-critical training to do, like soldiers running a tank or doctors doing some surgery or astronauts or 747 pilots. These guys have been doing simulation-based training for decades, if not many years, okay? But we can imagine a simulator for an airline pilot. That's a big multi-million dollar simulator. So everyone can't experience that. What has happened is that like with everything with, you know, technology touches, we've gone from, you know, $10,000, $15,000 VR headset systems down to $300 complete VR headsets now, Oculus Quest or something like that. $300. That's a third of the price of a cell phone. So the, the cost of being able to crack into the VR world now is suddenly and fundamentally way more accessible than it was even three years ago, okay? So that's factor number one. Number two, there are now software platforms and technological platforms that are becoming easier to use. It's not as hard to do. Uh, and at Interplay, the key strategy taken there that I think is very smart is instead of doing one-off simulations where every single project that you do is in and of itself, new code, wrapped up, costs a lot of money, instead, you start making a underlying platform that allows you to replicate your tools and your subroutines and stuff like that and rapidly develop different lessons, almost like using PowerPoint. So instead of engaging an artist to completely make a, a slide deck with their own technology, you just use PowerPoint over and over again. Well, now we're, we're getting to the case where the software is sophisticated enough to be able to allow this stuff to be developed at lower cost. So once again, the cost is coming down. What does that mean? It means that the audience potential for this stuff is exploding. It's no longer super expensive and rare. It's becoming more common. So let's draw a distinction and be clear between a couple of things. There's simulations and there's VR. And people often mix up the two or get them together. Interplay, for example, is very strong in the sense that everything that they develop is both simulation-based. So you can do it on a screen with a mouse. So anybody with a tablet or a phone or a computer screen can just do it without hardware. That's like the Verbella world that we use for Midwest Solar Expo. It's a simulation that also can experience, be experienced through VR. Okay, right. Exactly. There you go. Exactly. So you can have a headset and put it on, or you can do it flat on the screen. And they both work just quite well. Okay. But the question is, you know, is it the way? Is, is it what's happening? So you, you say it's coming. I'm, I keep saying, you know, it's been around for a while. But with incarnation now being accessible to us, individual human folks, as opposed to some airline pilot guy, it's now quite accessible to us. What it is, it engages the whole human in the learning process. I don't just have to sit still at my desk and use my ears and my eyes to upload the teacher's speaking into my brain. I get to be kinesthetic. I get to move. If I want to see something, I can actually turn my head and see it from a different point of view. I can pick it up. I can drop it. I can pick it up again. I can choose what I want to do. And that's so natural. 
that within a few moments, anybody that's skeptical about this kind of learning, be it an older person that's you know not a tech person and says, hey, I don't do technology, within a few moments of being immersed in this, you are just yourself. You are just your human brain in a space learning the way you've learned for your whole life. And it's a very natural way to learn. So it's a perfect match to what we want to do. And what's leading this as well is that VR can be used for a, a lot of things, but for the skilled trades, it's a perfect match. It's kind of like how cool solar is with direct coupled water pumping, where you take a module, connect it to a motor, and you pump water. During the summer, you need more water. The days are longer, it pumps more water. Sun comes up, it pumps water. Sun goes down, it doesn't pump. It's a perfect match. This technology is a perfect match to what skilled tradespeople need to know and who they are. They're kinesthetic learners. They don't want to sit there at a lecture and, and be tested and sit still and write with a pencil. They want to pick up a bloody tool and do it. And this allows that kind of learner to get started or to advance their skilled trades abilities naturally. It's a perfect match. So we've got, we've got technological barriers of cost coming down. We've got software capabilities uh, exploding, making things cool. And we've got a skilled trades gap uh, in a lot of trades, you know, solar as well, because we just got to explode by 10 times that needs uh, kinesthetic training. It's a perfect match. Yeah, that's the end there of part one. Don't go away. Got a couple of things to talk about. Part two is going to be here on Tuesday, where we normally have our tactical Tuesday. We're going to resolve the crescendo of this episode. We'll talk a whole lot about how Mark sees the world, how things are evolving and changing, as I mentioned in the intro. Very specifically, we get into consumer-grade headsets for virtual reality. We talk about best practices for training, learning-centered versus instructor-centered models, all of the ways that Mark kind of sees the world as it's evolving. We talk about his mentors and so much more. I hope that you will join us for episode two, which is coming out on Tuesday. Of course, as I mentioned, if you're eager to keep learning, you can jump over to mysuncast.com where we've listed social media links, book recommendations, and all kinds of stuff, not just from this episode, but from every episode. And while you're there, I hope that you'll take a couple of minutes and fill out our listener survey, which gives us a lot of information about how we can serve you better. All that's at mysuncast.com. Whatever podcast player you're in, why don't you just hit that subscribe button? If you did dig this episode and you're looking forward to part two, why don't you share that on LinkedIn and let Mark and I know that you're interested in following along. Get the conversation started over on LinkedIn. I do hope you'll tune in on Tuesday where we will dive in to part two of this episode and then next Thursday where we'll meet another fantastic entrepreneur as we are prone to do on Thursdays. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks so much for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.